Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Today I'm talking with Tiffany Vora. Uh, another faculty member from Singularity University. Uh, it seems like we're doing a series talking to a lot of the faculty members from Singularity, but the great thing is um, all of them have so much knowledge and uh, so many things to talk about that we only can talk about one thing at a time, but they all bring great value. So undoubtedly, this will be a good interview. Tiffany, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for the invitation to join you today. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be talking about... Um, some of your fortes, I guess, digital biology. Um, That's right. Can, yeah, can you explain to listeners what, what that means? Digital biology is a way of looking at living systems as information. So when we think about DNA, we can think about DNA as the source code for life. For digital biology, we think of a DNA sequence as literally code that we can edit just the way that you would edit computer code. And when you think of life as information, then that means you can program life to do lots of interesting things. That's the digital biology framework. So what are some of the main efforts that you're working on in the digital biology realm? Well, at Singularity University, one of the things I'm trying to do is bring this framework to people who are interested in learning about technology. We don't usually think of biology like a technology, but when we think of a living system as something that's programmable, then you can see that life is a technology. So some of the things I do here at Singularity University are I introduce people who have no biology background whatsoever to thinking about it this way. I show them some examples of how we can program living things to new, to, to, how we can program living things to do new functions or new tasks. When we have time, sometimes we do labs together where I can show them literally how with their own hands, they can do it yourself, bioengineering, where we can program bacteria to do different functions or plants if we feel like being fancy. Um, we also introduce people to these new technologies that are very cutting edge and very exciting in biology. The biggest example I can think of right now of that is gene editing with CRISPR-Cas9, which is very exciting. It's the focus of a huge patent battle all over the world right now, and it has the potential to change agriculture, medicine, health, wellness in a very, very short period of time. Yeah, I've heard about CRISPR and Cas9, too. Yeah, what is it, and uh, why is it so amazing in, in its ability to make changes? So CRISPR-Cas9 is a precise gene editing technology. It's a way of quickly, at least in terms of biology experimentation, it's quick and easy. That doesn't mean it's really quick and easy, but it's better than everything we've had in the past. It's a technique that lets us quickly and easily make precise and permanent changes to DNA. So, for example, uh, think about how HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, gets into your T cells. Well, it gets into your cells just like a little spaceship docking at an airlock. If you can change the DNA code of that airlock, then the HIV can't get into your T cells anymore, and you're immune to AIDS. So these types of technologies are really exciting, and we are just now 
uh, coming to the point where we are leaving the realm of academia behind and really coming into its own. CRISPR-Cas9 is really coming into its own in agriculture, health, and a lot of other technolo uh, technology areas. Well, it's it's great that you can um, have a very specific tool that can alter parts of a genome, but how do you, I mean, things are so complicated, genes and gene expression. How do you know how to edit things in such a way where the organism will will be okay and not die or have some other problems that come up? I mean, how interdependent have you seen that uh, genes are in different parts of the genome? Well, the, the good thing that is that with how cheap and fast DNA sequencing technology is, is right now we have a blueprint for many, many types of living things. And the blueprint doesn't tell you anything about the complicated ways that the parts interact with each other, but it does give you a starting place. So for example, if I were going to CRISPR a system, the first thing I would do is I would look for the, I would find the sequence that I'm interested in changing, and then I would look in the rest of the genome of that organism to see if there was any other DNA that looked like that DNA. Because if it looks similar, then it's possible I try to change one sequence, but I accidentally change another sequence instead. And so those types, these are called off-target effects. And that is a big problem right now with CRISPR-Cas9. But we have these wonderful computer algorithms that are getting smarter and smarter that are helping us find the places in the DNA that we can change without changing other things. Now, that said, I'm an experimentalist by training, so I always do the experiment and see what happens. You never say to yourself, okay, I did it and it worked and it's perfect. It's just like debugging code, right? When you write a computer program, you assume there are bugs in the program and you've got to go find them. It's the same thing with CRISPR-Cas9. You go in assuming that something else has changed and you go looking with that mentality, trying to prove yourself wrong, basically. So what kinds of um, experiments have you done or have you seen and what are some of the effects with some of like the, the most amazing ones you've seen? For CRISPR-Cas9? Yes. Right. So there's a lot of really exciting things going on right now, these applications of gene editing, particularly CRISPR-Cas9. Some of the ones that I find most exciting, um, I think this idea of editing your T cells so that HIV can't get in, I think is spectacular. There are some clinical trials going on right now uh, where companies are doing that kind of thing. I've also heard people talk about curing disease or curing disease even in an embryo before a body has even started to grow. Let's say you have a disease like cystic fibrosis that is caused by one mutation in one gene. That's a pretty solvable problem with CRISPR-Cas9. If you knew that the baby that you were going to have was going to have cystic fibrosis, you could go in and fix it before the baby is ever born. That hasn't been done yet. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of ethical and moral questions around therapeutic gene editing, especially in embryos, because an embryo can't give permission for that to happen. So right now, um, the National Academies of Science and Medicine in the United States have said that therapeutic gene editing is what we should be focusing on right now. And in cases where this would be a life-saving intervention, we can start thinking about editing embryos human embryos. Other countries have already edited human embryos. In China, for example, there's already been human editing that we know about happening in embryos. To our knowledge, none of these babies have been born, but people are using the technologies in ways that are really pushing our ethical boundaries very, very quickly. So I'm, I'm very excited about those types of things. 
Um, another applications, uh, types of applications of CRISPR-Cas9 that I think are really exciting are in tumor biology. So what if instead of having a tumor cut out of you, you could have it edited to not be a tumor anymore? That would be pretty exciting. So people are looking at all kinds of ways of using this technology in humans, in animals, in plants, especially for agriculture. You know, we talk about how terrible pesticide use is. Well, what if you could CRISPR the genome of the plant so that it's no longer susceptible to the pest and you don't need the pesticide yeah. anymore? There's even been some cool stuff where people have made mushrooms that don't turn brown when you cut them. Um, they did that oh. with CRISPR. Uh, there's also been a group that made uh, wheat resistant to a terrible pest called powdery mildew. It just can't get the infection anymore. So there's all kinds of really exciting stuff going on right now in this space. What's your general feel of biology and the complexity of DNA and and life now that you've worked with you know CRISPR-Cas9 and you've been in this field? Do you, do you feel differently from when you first entered it? So speaking as a scientist, what drew me to biology has always been this desire to understand how things work. Uh, even when I was a kid, I was always interested in how things work. And as I went through high school and, and then eventually college, I had always assumed that I was going to be a medical doctor. But when I was in college, I began working in a genetics lab. And it was so fascinating for me to see these things that I had read about in a textbook actually happening in the system in front of me, in the thing that was alive in front of me that I was working on, and realizing that because these things were happening in the worms and in the bacteria, they were happening in me too. Now that I'm a digital biologist, that hasn't changed. I still have this absolute love and passion for understanding the way the natural world works, for understanding the way the natural world works. I get this feeling sometimes when people talk to me about biology that they see biology as being a bunch of facts that they had to memorize in high school from a textbook. And to me, that's mm. not what biology is. Biology is a way of thinking. It's a way of looking at the world around you. And, and when I look at the world, I see beauty and elegance and wonder. And knowing that there's rules underlying that beauty and that elegance, that's what gets me out of bed every day knowing that I'm going to find out something new every single day about the world around me, I think it's spectacular. Um, some of these technologies we talk about now are exciting because we're no longer just observing the natural world. We're actually changing it by thinking ahead of time. So we're rationally engineering the natural world, do all kinds of amazing things, some of which are we're copying nature and other things were coming up with entirely new ideas. And I think that is absolutely spectacular and so exciting. Are you more in awe and amazed at how biology works now, or is it kind of what you thought it would be? I think I'm more in awe now. I mean, the more I learn about how things work, and not just the rules by how they work, but also how life finds a way to bend those rules a little bit for specific purposes, I think it's great. Um, my, my husband is also a biologist, and when we travel with our son, who is five, you know, we're the people who went to Machu Picchu and looked at the snails, right, instead of the ruins. Yeah. We always find a way to find something beautiful. We, we scuba dive precisely because we know as biologists that the coral reefs are dying are going to be gone in our lifetime. And we are trying to get our son to have these experiences as well before these beautiful, precious living things are gone forever. So what are some things that you 
hope will happen or be accomplished with you know the science you're working in in the next few years? What are some of your goals? Uh, like personal goals or goals for the field? Uh, goals for the field. Goals for the field. So one of the things that I would like to see digital biology apply for in the near future. So I can think I think of these problems kind of in big buckets. So I can think about human health and disease. I can think about agriculture, and I can think about the environment. Those are sort of three big buckets I think about. Hmm. So for human health and disease, I would really like to see ways of keeping our bodies as healthy as possible as long as possible with the least amount of invasion. So talking again about tumors, what if we could find cancer when it's only just a couple of cells in your body rather than waiting for the tumor to be big enough that you can see it on an x-ray? There's a lot of really interesting work going on right now through what's called cell-free DNA monitoring where you get a blood draw twice a year and we look for tumor RNA or tumor DNA way before you can actually see the tumor. And then let's say you could, you identify that there's a cancer growing in you. You figure out what kind of cancer it is based on the DNA sequencing you did. And then you go in and you fix it with CRISPR before it's ever big enough to see, let alone cut out. I love this picture because it's focusing on maintaining health rather than treating disease. It's proactive rather than reactive. Right. And I think that's a really compelling vision for the future of what human health will look like. How, in terms you, of, you know, in the, yep, go ahead. In the tumor example, <clears throat> let's say you do find some tumor RNA, how would you go in and fix it with CRISPR? If it's, you know, how would you, do you have to worry about a certain spot in the body or you make changes to certain cells and that cascades throughout the body? Like how does it work? Some of it would depend on what kind of tumor it is. So if it's a, a hard tumor and it's a place where you can actually find it, then you can, uh, we have these clever ways of delivering therapeutics to specific parts of the body. And we're getting smarter at this all the time, which is really exciting. And some of the ways we do this, people talk about using nanorobots for these kinds of things. That's cool. Um, viruses are themselves already nanorobots. So what if you could engineer a virus with a homing beacon, essentially, that can follow a trail of chemicals or DNA to get back to the cell, spitting it out, and then that would, the virus then would attack right there, it would attack your tumor cell. You wouldn't have to go in with a knife. There's also these really exciting um, ways of looking at cancer now where instead of trying to put in an external agent, like a, a, a virus, you let the body's immune system attack the tumor directly, training your own immune system to do the work for you. I think those types of approaches are really exciting too, because again, you're working with an immune system that's already in place, and so perhaps you're minimizing the chances of side effects or other unpleasant things you would want. So you're right. I mean, thinking about the way cells interact with each other and how we can harness what evolution has already had 3.8 billion years to figure out how to do is, I think, a great step forward for us. And I guess the big question that's on everyone's mind is how long, how long do you, you know, given your view of mm -hmm. the current state of technology, let's say specifically with uh, human health, tumors, mm -hmm. cancer, how long do you estimate it'll be before we have a solution or multiple ones that can address um, certain cancers or maybe all of them? The good news is that these types of technologies are accelerating in how quickly we're able to develop them. So in particular, since now we're putting together a lot of different technologies to diagnose 
cancer more precisely. Like, for example, IBM Watson, uh, the Watson AI can diagnose cancer far more accurately than a human doctor can. That's, that's pretty astonishing. And so if you can piggyback on that and actually get the cancer diagnosis right the first time, then you can start invoking these new technologies and ways of treating them. There are some really important clinical trials going on right now, gathering data for some of these uh, types of like gene editing type approaches and uh, other types of small molecule approaches, these uh, immuno-oncological approaches. Those are all in clinical trials right now. Clinical trials are a slow step. They, they take years because they have to. You have to look at a lot of people. You have to watch them for a long period of time in order to get a therapy that's both safe and efficacious. If we had a way to speed up clinical trials and still have gold standard data, that would be great. That would make everything quicker. Um, so for cancer in particular, I think we're going to get to diagnostics much faster than we're going to get to therapeutics. My guess is that we're going to have some really great diagnostic tools within five years. And then I think the therapeutic tools are going to be another five years behind that. So I'm guessing on the 10-year time frame, it could be faster, depending on how quickly things can get approved and whether these approaches are actually safe and efficacious and don't fail in clinical trials. But I think within 10 years, we're going to be looking at cancer completely differently and treating it completely differently. Yeah, that would be great. I'm sure there's uh, a lot of people waiting yeah. in need of it. It's a, you know, very good. Um, uh, okay, so other areas, you know, you talked about um, handling cancer. What other types of applications um, are you really excited about that you see that are that are getting close to reality? Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm really excited about uh, some types of environmental things that we can do now. So, for example, we can program bacteria to be able to sense pollutants. There's a, a company called FriendSense, which came out of Singularity University. We're really proud of them. They have built bacteria that can sense arsenic in waters that are uh, being taken out from mines. So they're working up in Canada right now with some mining companies to really nail down where these pollutants are coming from, where they're going, and how high the levels are. So that's very exciting. There are also people who have taken bacteria and um, engineered them to actually eat the pollutants and break them down. So this is a really cool environmental remediation system. Um, we can get rid of pollutants. I think that's really great. And when I think about the environment, you know, if we could, for example, engineer corals so that they could handle five-degree warmer water, that would stop the death of the coral reefs that are happening all over the right. world right now. That, that would be spectacular. Or um, plants where the soil is becoming saltier, like in the Nile, for example, in Egypt. If we can get those plants to grow in saltier soil, then we're not facing a massive agricultural and humanitarian crisis within a few years as the human population keeps growing and we keep making the environment worse and worse. I've also heard some really cool ideas about using, uh, for example, thinking about carbon capture. Well, a tree is basically evolution's carbon capture device. A tree is made out of carbon. So what if we could engineer giant trees that were doing carbon capture for us out of the air and reducing our CO2 levels. That's a crazy idea, but it's not impossible. It just requires kind of vision and long-range planning um, that I think would really impact. Take technology and make it be able to impact on a massive scale. At Singularity, that's our big thing, is um, harnessing 
technology in order to solve humanity's grand challenges. And, and I think that these are some of them. Let's see, what are some other yeah, environmental ones? Like, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I think, it's, it's, I think just the fact that everyone there is encouraged to think in this way is, is half of the, the basis for the ideas, which is great. It seems like, um, you know, if you don't even try to think on that scale, then how are you ever going to get to these big ideas that change the world, you know? That's right. Um, I came to Singularity University from academia, and we're not really trained to think that way as academics. We're trained to think rigorously. We're trained to think slowly. We're trained to think conservatively. And at Singularity, it's also rigorous thinking, but it's take that and think about the science fiction. Think about how, how would you change everything? How would you impact a billion lives? I wasn't used to thinking that way before I came to Singularity, and so it's a lot of fun. Hey, can you talk for um, just a minute or two on how you were first exposed to Singularity University? And, you know, I guess it's probably obvious what drew you in, but um, <laughs> was it very difficult to get there? Uh, what's it like now that you are there? And how has your life changed? So I came to Singularity University almost through chance. Uh, I live in Silicon Valley. And through a personal connection, I met um, the woman who was our uh, head of the faculty here at Singularity, and she asked me to come in as a consultant and to do some work on teaching, focused on teaching. Um, I have a, a very strong background in pedagogy. So I worked on that for a while, and that was really great, and the material was really interesting, and she asked me to come hear some of the talks in our program. And I really enjoyed that because this was completely outside of my space, thinking about energy, thinking about space, thinking about security, thinking about blockchain. I had never been exposed to these things beyond reading about them in The Economist or something like that. So I was becoming more and more interested in the ecosystem at Singularity because it was so diverse and so outside my realm of experience. Uh, and then I was asked to come give a talk at Singularity, and I did that, and that was a lot of fun. I talked about the microbiome. Uh, which is my one of my areas of expertise, and uh, then they started asking me to come in full time, and that was that was a big switch for me because I was running my own company at the time, and so thinking about leaving my company or um, dialing back on my own company to come Singularity was a tough decision, but really it was the people at Singularity that drew me here. This this honest belief that they can change the world. I had never been in a place like that before. And I really enjoy that every day, coming to work and hearing people talk about the impact that they're having right now or hope to have. And the companies that we work with in our accelerator program all have the same big vision. It's a really exciting place to be every day. Sure it is, yeah. That's great. Just a couple more items. Let's, let's talk about, we talked a little bit about environment. We talked about the human body and, you know, and uh, tumors and cancer, et cetera. What's the third bucket and what's an example of uh, some exciting projects there. The third bucket I think about using um, digital biology for is agriculture. So agriculture is a really interesting problem because there's a lot of things going on. As, as a biologist, I tend to think on the level of the, the, the plant or the cow or whatever it is we're talking about. But really, agric agriculture, agricultural systems are very complex systems with lots of moving parts. So think about what would happen to a farm when you start bringing in imaging technology and drones and gene editing and you know a push to use less antibiotic or less pesticide when you start putting all these pieces together things can really change 
So for digital biology, for example, um, people have been, I, I just heard about a, a company in Europe that has figured out how to tune the microbiome of salmon. So that's the bacteria and the fungus that live on and in salmon. And if you start tuning those, you can change what you feed the salmon. And instead of having to feed the salmon other dead fish, suddenly you can feed them soy. And the salmon are suddenly are much healthier. You can grow them in closer proximity. They don't die. They don't fight. All these things change. And so it's a way of treating the ecosystem of the fish rather than just the fish itself. It's a, it's a really different way of looking at it. That sounds like a really interesting thing to me. Um, also, when we think about using digital biology for agriculture, I mentioned pesticides before. In my book, anything that lowers pesticide use can only be a good thing for the environment and for human health. Um, but we can also think about using foods as wellness devices. So what if I knew, based on DNA sequencing and a lot of other things, that your body responds really well to broccoli, but my body responds really well to artichokes? Maybe we both need the same medication or something, and so instead of taking a pill, I eat my medicine-producing artichokes, right? It might not be enough to stop cancer, but if it's, say, trying to slow down diabetes or you're pre-diabetic and trying to keep you from being diabetic, we're talking about personalized nutrition. And I think that's a really exciting way forward for us right now. What if we knew, based on huge amounts of data we have in our lives, what kind of food would work best for each one of our bodies? I and mean, then being able to tune a plant or a yogurt or something else like that, even animal cells, to be able to um, be a personal match, I think that's really exciting. There's another group at Singularity who's come through Singularity called Modern Meadow who are trying to make hamburgers or meat where an animal doesn't have to die for it. The animals, the cells, the beef cells are grown in culture and they're made into hamburgers and there's no cow. So there's no slaughter, there's no negative environmental impact of a massive feedlot on a, a local area. This is really exciting. Imagine you were yeah, an astronaut. It. Yeah, imagine you're an astronaut going to Mars and you're growing your own food in the spaceship with you and you're still able to eat beef or you're still able to eat pork or fish or whatever it is that makes you happy. You're able to do that on these types of long journeys and no animals have to die for it. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's, that's you know, have you interacted much with Modern Meadows and seen their products or their process? I have not been able to eat any of their burgers yet, <laughs> unfortunately, but I, I look forward to it. I know the, the cost is coming down, which is very exciting. Um, they're also working on some leather products that I think are really interesting. Again, imagine you could have a leather purse and no cow had to die for it. That's really exciting. Right. And hopefully you don't um, mistakenly eat the burger, but it's a piece of leather. that they. <laughs> well, it's all, it's all cells, right? It's all cow cells. Amazing. I guess in summation, so how can listeners find out more about your work in particular um, or get involved with Singularity University in general? Um, what's your suggestion? Right. So I think the best way to get started with Singularity is to check out our online uh, media center, which is called Singularity Hub. Um, we have articles coming out every week where we are looking at the, uh, the technologies that we're interested in here at Singularity, so things like robotics, networks and computing, future forecasting, AI, 
nanotechnology, biotechnology, 3D manufacturing, neuroscience. Singularity Hub has articles on all of these topics and more um, that come out on a daily, uh, daily basis. So I would definitely recommend starting there. If you go to YouTube, you can check out a lot of the videos that we have. Um, one of my favorite video series from Singularity is called Ask an Expert. Um, and one of my videos is on there. I was talking about uh, a lot about ancient DNA and space exploration, which I have um, funnily a lot of experience with as well. I've had an unusual <laughs> career. Uh, so check out our YouTube channel. And then um, Singularity's website has lots and lots of information on it. And if you are an innovator and you're interested in impacting the lives of a billion people and you're particularly interested in climate change, I would recommend checking out our Global Solutions Program, which is our big summer program where we bring people in into the Singularity uh, campus here in Silicon Valley. And they meet each other and they meet innovators and you spend about eight weeks working up the idea for a product that will change the world. And from there, you can look at our, our accelerator and these other various things to really bring your product and your team out into the world as a force for good. So I think that, but that's for the, the truly excited. Um, I say start with Singularity Hub, start with our YouTube channel, check out what we're all about and see what interests you. Okay. Yeah. And just, um, if you could just repeat, what's the summer program called with Singularity our University? Summer our summer program is called the Global Solutions Program, the GSP. Great. Okay. Well, Tiffany, thanks so much. Um, this has been, you know, again, every time I talk to someone from Singularity University, their interests are so diverse that, you know, we cover 10 different areas. Uh, it's hard to focus on one, but uh, I get a lot of hope and inspiration by hearing this stuff, and I think listeners will too. So I really appreciate your time on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review and discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.